You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series which is our weekly ongoing role exploration of the world of rules-based investing. And of course, where we also try and take some of your questions. But today is very special. We have a super great guest, Nick Raj. Nick may be known to you as the chartist and is someone that we have wanted to come on the show for a while. So we're very excited about today's conversation. So let me start by saying welcome to you, Nick. How are you doing down there? Very well. Thanks, Niels. Moritz, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Nick. Uh, good evening to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Long time in the making. I was really looking forward to that. And uh, good afternoon to you, Niels, as well. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, as mentioned, we have lots of things we want to talk to you about, Nick. But as usual, we will start with a short uh, rundown of what's happened in the last uh, week or so in our portfolios, in our markets, uh, just to kick things off. Um, I also want to just say that if you do find the sound quality a little bit different than normally we are still experiencing some internet speed issues here in switzerland uh due to this corona virus at the moment um now just as a quick uh, rundown i mean of course uh, this week the impossible happened on monday we had wti crude for may delivery crashing to a negative uh, 37.63 dollars a barrel compared to the trading day before, where I think it finished around $18 positive. Um, so funny thing about, you know, capital markets, of course, is that they consistently provide us with these first time in history uh, outcomes. What's interesting about that is actually also what the CME group, the exchange, um, had to say about these things. And um, Terry Doffrey from the CME group was quoted for saying, nobody should be under the a perception that commodity futures can't go below zero. We've seen other commodities go below zero in the past. We have to do things to allow the market to go to the price that it is reflecting the fundamentals of the product. The futures markets work to perfection. Small retail investors need to make sure they understand the rules. And I do think that a lot of investors were kind of shocked with what happened to the price development of oil. I mean, negative oil prices, what what could be next. But I think the good news is that not only did the futures markets work to perfection, as the CME group was saying, I also think actually trend following uh, worked uh, pretty well. And I'd like to just spend a minute or so explaining that. So firstly, I don't think any established trend followers would even be involved with a May contract two days before expiry. That's just simply too risky. And so most trend followers would have rolled their positions uh, many days ago um, before uh, the May contract stopped uh, or would stop trading. And, um, and and also I would say, and I'm sure we're going to come to that, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Moritz. I mean, on our side, we were not uh, involved in, in the May contract at all. But the other thing I just want to say, and I think this is really important, is that trend-following strategies, you know, they are designed on the premise that knowing what you don't know. So inherently, they're quite robust even when we have to deal with these first-time-in-history events. And I think 2020 as a year, so far at least, is a good example of that. So... Moritz, 
I'm excited to hear how your week uh, panned out um, through all of this. Panned out fairly well. I'm sure we'll touch on crude again uh, on a multiple, uh, many occasions later on in this conversation. But so uh, just, you know, to give you the rundown about my trading week, it was remarkably smooth. I was saying to you prior to uh, going live that I had, you know, four days out of five being positive and uh, kind of like consistently positive that I were just, you know, nicely moving up, even though we had, you know, the, the big move in the crude markets on um, on Monday. So close to plus two percent for this week i'm now 1.61 month to date four and a half percent up year to date biggest winners this week again short crude not the may contract but june um you know short peso short brazilian real was standing out short coffee and really you know not that many bad positions bad in quotes meaning you know causing some losses but you know short cotton short corn short hawks those markets produced uh, a bunch of losses for me, but nothing too major. So fairly steady, positive week. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we are, despite doing things very differently in the trend following space, we're certainly tracking each other pretty well. Uh, also a, a nice solid week for us, uh, also very uneventful in many ways. Uh, gains mainly come from short energies, of course. Uh, currency did okay. Metals did fine. Uh, equities and fixed, on work, fixed income were pretty flat, actually. And uh, our biggest loser um, was, in fact, the Lean Hawks, but it's still one of the best markets in the portfolio so far this year. So with that said, let's turn to the more interesting part of today's conversation, namely you, Nick. <laughs> so I think as always, I mean, um, it's always good to get a little bit of context to to the conversation. And I think um, one of the best ways of, of doing that is just to learn a little bit more about your story. So as we take our conversations in different direction, people will um, perhaps understand better, uh, you know, why we're doing so. So, I mean, I would... I know you've been in the business um, and started trading pretty much the same time as as I did. So uh, I'd love to hear your your uh, yeah your journey really. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I started trading in 1985. Um, I left school in '84. Didn't go to university, um, and I had no interest in trading whatsoever. And I just happened to jag a job um, at a stockbroking company that had a um, futures, well, they actually had a fixed income desk and they used futures. They weren't a floor member of the Sydney Futures Exchange. They were an associate member. And they obviously used the futures to hedge their uh, fixed income exposure, that kind of stuff. So it was my job just to do the paperwork um, for that. And I happened to be on the trading floor and basically I was just pushing paper. And one day I happened to walk past the um, private client desk. This was a stockbroking firm. And um, there was a guy plotting uh, the five and 10 day moving average crossover on the old chart paper. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm trading. This is a, this is a trend following strategy. And when the five crosses the 10, I buy. And when it crosses below, I sell. And he was trading the share price index futures, was same as your S&P 500 futures that you'd know about. Um, so I thought, wow, I could see the trends. There they were, bang, just um, I could see it working. It was, it was just so obvious. And um, that's where it all began, right there. I went into the office manager, a wily old guy, and I was, was I, 95, I was 18, 
I was earning 12 grand a year. And uh, back then, the share price index futures was $100 a tick. Today, it's $25 a tick. <laughs> and he and I said, oh, can I trade these futures? And he's just shaking his head going, what are you talking about? Uh, but he did let me. He said, well, what you have to do is fill out a ticket and you bring it in here and I'll sign it. And then um, you can ring it down to the trading floor and place your order. So there I was trading share price index futures on a five and 10 day moving average. That was it. There was no position sizing. There was, that was an afterthought. That, that came seven years later, that kind of stuff. Um, so needless to say, 1987 came around and I wasn't trading that because I would have been on the right side of the market trading that. I was doing something a little bit more stupid as a 20-year-old would do. And uh, needless to say, I, I blew up everything and my father had to bail me out. So um, I learned the hard way, um, and, but that's where, it all, that's where it all started. Yeah, I mean, I love these stories. It's, uh, it is sometimes, and certainly it was for me as well, it's kind of this kind of love at first sight once you, uh, once you uh, realize what, what this is all about. It's, uh, it's hard, to, uh, hard to turn back. Now, I mean, I'm also interested in a little bit maybe the, the continuation of that journey to where you are today, and then we're going to maybe go back and ask why you took certain choices and also, you know, what, what you see in terms of opportunities uh, for, for the way you trade today and, and why you've made those choices. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the story, uh, if you don't mind. Sure. So um, basically, I took a couple of years off after that um, and just sort of steadied the ship. And I was working down on the trading floor of the Sydney Futures Exchange. I was filling paper. And that's when I was first exposed to a lot of the big CTAs, you know, um, show um, all these, uh, the, a lot of the turtle guys back there. Obviously, I was in the bank bill pit um, and we had a big operation. Uh, there was four of us in the pit filling paper. So we got a lot of the, uh, the trend following business come in. And it intrigued me because you wouldn't hear from these guys. And all of a sudden, they'd come in and absolutely hit the market. And uh, so that tweaked my interest. And the other thing that tweaked my interest into the trading arena back then was my uh, mentor at the time. She was the desk manager of the International Trading Desk. She got given a copy of Jack Schwager's book, Market Wizards. And I, I just consumed that, you know, that really got me going into that kind of stuff. And I guess, you know, it becomes a passion. I, I think there's a lot of people that read trading books and you know treat them like little trophies, put them on the shelf and say, I've read that tick, I've read that tick, but they're not really reading between the lines. They're not taking it in and they're not feeling that passion. And I think I was lucky, I don't know why, but I think that's what got me. I, I became passionate about it. Um, my mentor at the time, um, we, we had a very, very profitable business. In fact, when I started, there were six of us in the business. And when I left, there were 77. And I was the first person to ever leave. Um, and I went overseas. She said to me that, you know, if you want to have a go in this business, you've got to go overseas because Australia is just such a small place. So uh, I shipped off to London and I worked on the trading floor of uh, HSBC over there. Uh, they had a thousand person dealing room and that was at the time where uh you know we had some big moves in the markets and dealing with some pretty big and it was amazing just walking into that dealing room it was like wow you know this is just huge 
Um, we had Soros was very active back then and all this kind of stuff. So it was pretty impressive. And then um, I went to Singapore for a couple of years just after Nick Leeson did his damage over there. So, you know, a guy coming from London with the name of Nick into Singapore wasn't <laughs> wasn't particularly uh, the done thing at the time. It took eight weeks, actually, for the authorities there to, to sort me out. Um, so I had two years there, and that's when I... Um, decided to pack that side of it up and come back to Australia and start my own CTA, which I did in 1998. So exactly what you guys did today. Back then in the 90s, the Sydney Futures Exchange had a membership, actually, a CTA membership. And um, I took up one of those and started trend following um, using a completely systematic approach, exactly the same as what you guys do today. Mine was probably a little bit faster than what yours yours would be, um, but that was really what it was like back then. And we traded, I think, from memory, about 52 markets. Um, we had a cracking first year. We had 20% first year out of, the, out of the hat, and we got some interest from overseas, and we started raising a lot of money from expats and uh, high net worth individuals out of Asia. Um, my business partner and I had both worked in Asia. He'd worked in Hong Kong for quite a number of years, so we had contacts over there. Um, and, yeah, we, uh, we got into the routine of attending the, the conferences in, um, I think I told you this, Moritz down there in, um, in uh, Florida, doing all that yes. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so that all came to an end in 2001, actually. So my... As I guess we learn, um, running a futures um, trading business with funds under management, and the buying and selling is a very small part of the business. You know, the compliance, uh, looking after the clients, raising funds, running a business is is the majority of it. And my partner, he was a he was an old school prop trader. He just wanted to buy them and sell them and do nothing else. And um, so we parted ways in two thousand and one. And at the same time, the Australian regulator brought in a lot of new rules and made it very, very difficult, very complex from a compliance perspective. So we thought the best thing to do was shut it all down, which we did. Probably the worst business decision I've ever made in my life because it was such a great business. But it opened another door. Um, we had raised a lot of money from one of the big banks here in Australia and the guy that was managing us from that bank said to me, well, why don't you bring your clients and your model over here and run it out of the bank for a 50-50 split? And so I did that. And that was obviously a good thing, but it opened a door that I'd kind of thought about. Um, and it opened a door that I could manage money trading stocks. What, what's important to understand here is you can't have a license if you have no experience in that particular side of the business. So even though I traded futures for, you know, 15 years up until that point of time, because I'd never worked in the stock side of things or the equity side of things, I couldn't actually go and manage money trading equities. You have to work three of the last five years in the business to actually get a license. So this entry into this bank gave me the opportunity to get that experience. So I spent four years uh, at this particular bank running my models 
and uh, was very successful at doing that. And I switched from running futures into uh, running equities models. My logic was if I could manage $50 million trading futures, I could probably manage several hundred million dollars trading equities. Um, and that's where that new journey began. So 15, 16, 17 years trading futures, all of a sudden I started trading the exact same model, but in equities, and I still trade that same model today. I mean, that's fascinating on a, on a couple of things, but I just want to say to you, Nick, that actually, uh, if you have anything to square out with Nick Leeson, you need to let us know now because he's going to be on the show in about a month. So, uh, you know. Ah, it's so next we'll, week. It's next week. Oh, it's next week. <laughs> Very short notice. Fantastic. Wow. Fantastic. So uh, that's a funny story that you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, gosh, I could tell you some funny stories. I, so one of the clients we had on Cymex took the other side to Nick Leeson's trades. And in one particular year, that final year, they called him, from my memory anyway, Goldfinger. He was a bank arbitrage trader. He was arbing the Nikkei futures from Cymex and Osaka. And he made 98% of the bank's profits that year himself from that arbitrage. Yeah, yeah. That's that was my understanding, and we had yeah. um, a we had a staff member dedicated to him uh, for the whole trading session on Cymex, just to look after his orders, just to run his art, because obviously Osaka was computer at the time. Cymex was a floor traded, so uh, you know it was still all the open outcry. But yeah, some great stories I heard about all that stuff sure. that was going on. Absolutely, yeah. I can't wait to hear the the. Uh... The, the true story, so to speak, yeah, next week, anyway. Right. So, but back to your story, mm. uh, which is fascinating uh, as well. And I, I kind of understand, obviously, now your your journey and why you ended up doing uh, stocks uh, only. And I, you know, for my part, I have many many questions uh, relating to to that, um, and I'm sure uh, Moritz has as well. Um, Looking back, just maybe to kick it off a little bit, um, looking back, um, in trend following is something that I think a lot of people believe that if they read one of those books, they can just go and simply apply it to any market. But personally, I think I think that one of the secrets to um, getting trend following to work well for you is actually the diversification you get from the kind of broader uh, futures portfolio that you were trading initially. Um, so I'm actually curious to how you've made the, you, you say you use the same model, so you transfer it to equities. So I'm curious to know what you think uh, the reason is that you've been able to successfully make that transition, because to me, that is not, that's not, um, you know, kind of a straightforward logic, especially also when I see at our own performance, how we Certainly in the indices, we don't trade single stocks, but in the indices where one particular sector doesn't have to be particularly successful for a long period of time, and then it comes back and it, you know, so I'm curious about that, actually. Sure. So I should clarify that when we're trading trends and equities, we're only trading on the long side. Um, my clients and i guess you know i'm just in a different part of the world to where you guys are at my clients are mainly looking after their retirement accounts so they're middle-aged professionals 
they are early retirees, they've been around the block a few times, they understand the problems with buy and hold, and they don't want to be a part of that world. They don't want to pay a financial planner one or two basis points to stick them in a 60-40 portfolio and just write it out. Um, they want to be on the right side of the market. They want to be defensive during sustained bear markets, uh, like now, which we are, we're 100% cash, what, like we were in 2008 uh, during the GFC, we were 100% cash. Um, they want to understand the evidence behind what we're doing. You know, they want to understand why does this work? That's the question. Why does this thing called trend following on stocks actually work? And that is one of the easiest things to explain to them. You know, I use the analogy of being a hitchhiker. You stand on the right side of the highway. You don't know what car's going to stop, but you know if you stand there long enough, one will stop. You jump on that ride, and when that ride ends, you hop off. And it's, it's as simple as that, basically. Um, the other thing is for them, you know, it's very, very easy to implement minimal workload. You don't have to read balance sheets. You don't have to even have to understand what the company does. Um, you know, when you submit your tax returns at the end of the year to the tax office, you're not telling them what you did. You just tell them where you bought and where you sold, and that's really all it comes down to. So our target market is a little bit different, I guess, to yours. Um, we're not attempting to be a diversified kind of strategy per se across asset classes or anything like that. We're just simply trying to beat, buy and hold. So, and we do that successfully. Well, I think we do that successfully. Since 2006, which is when this particular portfolio kind of became public, um, you know, we've got an annualised return of 14.5% versus the index of 4.2%. The index I benchmark, benchmark against has had a return of 1.4% per year. So we do that and our drawdown, worst drawdown in that period of time since 2006 has been 19.2% versus the index, I think, what, 51% or something during 2008. So from a pure risk-adjusted return basis, you know, we're doing reasonably well and we're achieving our goals for those people that are interested in doing what we do. Um, it doesn't appeal to everybody, but for those people that, uh, you know, want exposure to equities but don't want to do buy and hold, you know, it, it's, it's a good solution for them. I know, Marge, you must be bursting with questions, so I'm just jumping in before that burst comes out. But uh, so the long only side, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense because we know that also within a diversified portfolio, most of the profits come from the long side. That I fully um, understand. But did your choice of only trading equities on the long side simply come from the fact that it's just too complicated to do the shorts? Or had you already in your analysis realized that, okay, actually... If I do the shorts as well, my returns are most likely not going to be as, as, as great. So a few things to, um, to understand there is, first of all, when we started doing this, trading on the short side really wasn't an option for the very vast majority of people. Um, today, you know, that's a, that's a common thing. The other thing to understand as well is that in Australia during the GFC, short selling was totally banned right across the board. So... 
what's the point on having a strategy that's that's required for those periods of times and you can't use it? Um, and we like to keep things simple. You know, we one of my philosophies is if you keep things as simple as possible, clients are going to more than likely implement them. As soon as you add complexity to the equation, they jump out the window. They say, no, 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 I don't understand what's going on here, so I'm just not going to do it. I would rather do something that's suboptimal but gets the job done reasonably well than make it optimal and confusing for someone because um, they're just not going to do it. I would rather than do it suboptimally, they'll still get a result that's better than, than not doing it at all. Um, so things like position sizing, we keep that very, very simple. Um, we don't go short, we just go to cash. People get cash, they can sit here. And in 2008, and this was quite a fascinating exercise because it was the first time that people where I was managing the money were exposed to this. To start with, there was a lot of pushback. It's like, hold on, we're sitting in cash, why are we paying you? And it's like, well, because that's the decision the model has made and you're paying me to trade that model. By the end of 2008, early 2009, they got that. They understood that because they'd never seen it before. And they could stand back and say, wow, that was the best thing to do. And it was the best thing to do twofold, financially, obviously, that's the obvious thing. But psychologically, psychologically, people were able to pull the trigger and get long again in March 2009, which is what we did. Um, those buy and holders or whatever who capitulated down the lows, psychologically, they were devastated. They couldn't pull the trigger again. There's still today. I come across people that won't go near the stock market because they lost so much money back in the GFC. You never want to be in that position. So we put ourselves in a position to limit the downside by going to cash, but also having it simple and being psychological uh, strength to be able to participate again when the good times come along. I, I guess the major difference is, you know, the stock market does touch wood in most circumstances, have an upward bias over the longer term. So all things being equal, and mind you, maybe things have changed as of today, but all things being equal, that, that should continue into the future. Avoiding the trading paralysis that you just alluded to, I think this is one of the most important things uh, that you have to have as part of your kind of like trading behavior, right? If, if you're going into a 30, 40% drawdown and you have absolutely no plan and no guide about how to behave, then odds are that you're not going to come out of that because you're going to throw in the towel. You'll Absolutely. just be a, an emotional wreck. Yeah. And I, I know quite a few people who have had that experience and they no longer want to have to do anything with the stock market. And I think it's just bollocks. And that's a problem, I think. And so, you know, it, it again speaks to the quality of having a plan and having a system. And even like you say, Nick, even a suboptimal system is a system. And if it beats buy and hold, then that's a valuable system in my opinion and I, I think the key to success i really think the difference between professional traders and those that are struggling to get on their feet is just the long-term application of a simple strategy that's that's what it comes down to you know one of the things i've done with my clients is send them the performance tables of done of eckhart of all these 
um, traders that have been around for 20, 30, 40 years and say to them, look, they place their trades every day, every week, every month, every year, year after year after year after year. They keep doing it. And that's that's the discipline, obviously, and the dedication to it. And I think people need to grasp it. They're just a lot of people are looking for a quick run, you know, two months, three months. I, I have people who start my strategy and after two months they go, no, this doesn't work. It's like, well, okay, you know, it's it's not a holy grail, which is why I call my book Unholy Grails as a bit of tongue in cheek, but the point is it's the long-term application of just a simple strategy. And most people do not have that long-term um, ability to do that. You know, they're in too much of a hurry these days. Maybe they've always been like that. But if you can find a strategy that suits your personality, and that's important because that means you'll be able to execute it. Um, and if that's the case, then you should be able to apply it for the long-term absolutely agree you know if if you are a person that doesn't want to trade pl um, place trades every day then there's no point you trading a strategy that is short term or trading intraday because you're not going to be doing it right so you have to find something that is longer term and less involved and maybe trades only on a weekly basis where you can you know take some time over the weekend to run signals and then place them on monday morning and then just do something else yeah but this is important and and i think another thing is never take any of those losses that come from a single trade that you put on personally it's just one trade out of thousands if you really want to do this it's one trade out of tens of thousands maybe that you're going to be doing over a trading career and that one trade that fails and maybe it's a trade that fails miserably with a major loss even though that shouldn't happen but you know sometimes it can happen just forget about it I kind of like say like just erase it from memory, right? Take the lessons that you can learn from the mistake so that you don't repeat it um, if you can spot them. But other than that, it's one trade out of the sample size. Let's move on, right? Because yeah. you don't gain anything by becoming kind of like painting everything black and worrying too much about one bad trade. It's the, the cost of doing that business is doing bad trades. That's just what it is. And I think the other thing to also recognize is that if you do this long enough, you're going to get a slap across the face. That's what Mr. Yes. Market does. They, they deliver um, these All humbling the experiences <laughs> to just keep you, uh, keep you on your backside and say, I'm the boss, just stick to your rules and we'll be fine together. But if you want to deviate, if you want to get aggressive, like I was in 1987, no, I wasn't aggressive, it was just playing stupid. But... If you want to go and, and play silly games, well, you're going to pay the price. Everyone pays the price. It's going to happen. And I've had slaps across the face. Um, and sometimes you, sometimes you can stand here and think, what am I doing? What is going on here? But you keep pushing forward and you push through it and uh, away you go, you know. Fourth quarter 2018, horrendous, absolutely horrendous. That reversal in tech stocks, you know, really, really uh, did some damage um, and that comes along. But you know what? You have to suck it up. You have to keep pushing forward. And very importantly, you have to learn from that lesson. What can I learn from that? And I'll tell you what I learned from that lesson was diluting my signals, basically. That's what I had to do. And that's, that's a 
key piece of research that I've been working on for the last year is I was too reliant on a single signal. And as a result, uh, the timing of that signal was poor. It wasn't poor, that was the signal. I should have had more signals in there, which I've now initiated across my various portfolios to do that. Um, so that removes that timing signal or that signal timing risk, if you like. So there's a lesson to be learned. It's not going to hang, hang up my boots and be out of here, this, this stuff, you know, it's rigged. That's right. You've just got to say, right, what can I learn from this and, and, and keep moving forward? And there's always lessons to be learned, right? I mean, those markets, because they change all the time and it just never is the exact same thing that repeats, they always always throw us a new curveball that we can learn something from. I mean, the you know the reduction of timing luck, it's one of the things that we're doing. And we've had Corey Hofstein on our podcast, who yeah. I think has written a great paper about this. It's not too complicated to understand. It's you know simply spreading out your signals and taking signals at different points in time, as opposed to just you know one single point in time or two single points in time, where just as you say, Nick, you have an exposure to things such as the fourth quarter of uh, 2018, where there's a massive V-shaped reversal. If you get caught on the wrong side of that, then you're in a bad position. But if you spread it out over, say, four or five or six signals, then you'll get a little bit of the bad stuff, but you'll also get a little bit of the good stuff. Yes. And this makes it much more easier to follow. Yes. And this year has been a great example of that. You know, Correct. Uh, we got quite lucky. I think the main U.S. portfolio is down 2.8% for the year. We're 100% cash. Um, and I'm happy to be that way. You know, um, it, it's a good position to be in considering what's going on, although this bounce back has been quite unbelievable but yeah you've got to learn from these things and you know we've spent a lot of time researching different strategies and you know i'll take off my trend following hat here for one second only but you know we trade also mean reversion strategies and uh, even volatility day trade strategies simply because they actually do very well in times like this when our trend models are in cash, those shorter term models are actually doing quite well. I think uh, the volatility um, strategies are up 14.8% so far this year um, because that thrives on this kind of volatility. So, you know, it, it's another type of diversification, albeit not trend following. I had two questions on that. Uh, one is just when you said you um, uh, made some changes that you wanted to reduce kind of the reliance on one single signal. Did you just change the time frame, meaning using the same signal on multiple time frames, or did you actually add more different types of signals? So that would be one question. And then the other thing would just be whether these different systems you have, um, say, for example, can you only trade vol if you're out of stocks and in cash, or do you combine them, or how, how does that work? Is it one big system, or are they individual components that you know you don't mix and match or how does how does that work sure so um the first question um two different things that i've done there so for example in the u.s markets we trade an, a relative momentum strategy um i trade a couple of them over there and one we focus on the tech stocks specifically um now that is a what well, was a monthly strategy so what we took we took that and we, half the portfolio stays on the monthly um, timing and then the other half goes to weekly. I then made a slight change to the strategy. 
So all our strategies, we would classify them as dual momentum. They all use a regime filter. So what I actually did just to make it a little bit different is I have the regime filter on the weekly signal um, just to give something a little bit different there as well. The, the, the performance you know, difference, for example, I think moves down by about one basis point and the drawdown moves down by about half a basis point. But the whole idea was to just get those different signals. So that's one of them. My Australian portfolio, I had to do two things. I, I was getting nervous because of the size of the account anyway. So what I decided to do is divide the account into two and trade a completely different system. So the strategy that's been running since the 90s, that has now only got 50% allocation. And I've introduced a second strategy, which I developed back in 2012, but I've never traded it um, for any extended period of time. But I've now allocated the other 50% to that strategy. And that's a weekly strategy. And that is your very classic trend following breakout style strategy as well. And I trade that on a much broader universe than the other core strategy. So slightly different universe, um, slightly different signal, um, and different time as well, weekly versus the daily. So, you know, just mixing it up as much as I can. I guess some of your listeners may say, oh, it sounds like a lot of work, but it's, it's, it's actually not. Um, it's all automated. It doesn't take very long at all. And, um, you know, it does make a big difference. So that's what we did with those uh, particular signals. When you say it doesn't take very long, what I was, it, it took me quite some time and a long time to get to the point where it doesn't take any longer. Yeah, more, it took right? 20 years, that's right. <laughs> exactly. So now it's a, like a click of a button, but to make, uh, to get to the point where it is a click of a button, that is a longer period of time. So if people really want to have a go at that, it's not it's not a five minute thing where you're coming out of this and, and you know what it is that you need to do. Yeah, it's a longer process. It's for everything in life, though, isn't it? You know, correct. You, you want to become a um, a leading surgeon? Well, it's it's not a flick of a button. It's a lot of yep. a lot of time. So when are different to every other profession. You just got to spend the time and put it in and come out the other side. Uh, professional athletes are exactly the same. You know, you're trying for 10 years for that two minutes of glory at the Olympics or something like that. It wasn't an overnight success. That's right. Does that also count for politicians that if they've been a politician for 40 years, they should be really good at it? <laughs> come on, don't drag me down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, maybe one thing, Nick, I, I wanted to ask, and for the, for the benefit of listeners is, um, and, and for the sake of explanation, you are, I think, uh, not actually trading the portfolios for your clients. They are trading their own portfolios in their own name. So what you are doing is you're providing them with trading signals um, and in, in a certain format that's easy to read or you know easy to then execute or upload even into a system. Uh, but but they they are do-it-yourself clients uh, who receive signals from your business, which is called the Chartist. That's correct. So I stopped managing money in 2016. The compliance environment over here is uh, is quite hellish, um, very very expensive, um, and it's it's really a game for the big boys now. You know, um, so we run the signals and people are able to subscribe to those signals 
and we post our own data there as well. So, you know, it gives a lot of confidence to our clients that we're trading with them. Um, They can see our results. They can see my positions. The idea is that they don't try and replicate exactly what I'm doing, but obviously that's what they're doing. Um, But the whole, you know, for example, this downturn we've just had, which I guess we can compare to 1987 because of the speed and depth of it. Uh, We had one client, I won't say complaint, but one client saying, and he started in January, I mean, hello, how's your timing like right there, Um, that I think he was down 14% and he wasn't particularly happy about it. So what I've managed to do is over the years, I hope is to educate our clients of what it takes, what it needs, what you need to do. And I'm assuming my clients are trading my signals. Maybe they aren't, and that's why I got no complaints. But I think because we've educated them so well over the years and they know that I'm neck deep in it with them, that there's no point them sending me an email and having a having a complaint because what are they, you know, it's like, hey, Talk to me about it. I know exactly what's going on. I've got the same positions on. So, um, you know, that's a good thing. But, yes, that's the way I run my business now, and I'm and I'm pretty happy to do that. We still have to be licensed by the regulators. But because of the nature of that business, the licensing requirements are not as strict as if I was actually managing money. So to give you an I idea, mean, just that- to give you a, a basic idea, for example, the indemnity insurance that I pay for the style of business I do now is about, I think, $12,000 a year for managing money that would hop to about forty dollars or $50,000. So it's a big expense. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's very interesting to listen to um, and, um, and, and, and this whole idea about telling people what to do because we know as, you know, human beings... Even if we're told what to do, we don't always do it. Yeah, and and so I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the education and the constant reminder of the importance that one of the things that I feel that we as a manager get paid get paid for. I mean, it's the discipline and it's the you know holding people's hands, uh, quote unquote, by doing all the trades through the difficult times. I mean, I think I don't think you can really overestimate how hard it is i think for people who don't do this full time um to uh, to keep doing the trades yeah um because all a lot of uh, certainly in our industry or certainly on our side i mean a lot of the trades you do as a trend follower they don't make necessarily intuitively sense uh when you're asked to buy the high after you just missed you know a big up move uh, missed in in quotation signs um so um so it's yeah, I'm, I'm it's interesting and it's it's interesting to hear um that you can get people to to actually do it because it's so important yeah and the other interesting thing and we're seeing it now we saw it again in 2008 we doubled our business in 2008 uh a lot of people realised they'd just been lucky and uh, they got knocked down pretty badly a few pegs and realised that, well, if we want to keep doing this, we've got to do it properly. So we doubled our business in 2008 and we've been inundated again 
just in the last yeah. month of the same kind of thing. But coming back to what you were saying, we we introduced a mentoring um, product in 2016 when I stopped managing money. And the reason being is exactly what you were talking about. It's all good and well following someone else's signals and you have to have complete confidence. And a lot of people, especially new people, um, may not have that confidence. So the question is, how do I get that confidence? Well, yeah, we can look at a track record for however many years and ours goes back to 2006 and you guys, you go back to 1974 or whatever. And in theory, that should instill some kind of confidence. But in some cases, it still doesn't. You know, I can show people the performance. Here it is. Oh, yeah, but I don't know. Um, so we introduced a mentoring course in 2016. And the theory or the logic behind it was if we can teach people how to code and then they themselves can design, code, build, backtest, stress test their own model, if they can do that and it stands up to the stress testing and they've done it themselves, then in theory they should be able to trade it a lot easier because they built it to their own specifications. They should be able to trade it a lot easier into the future. And that's been very, very popular. Um, and again, it's about building a strategy to suit your personality. That's really what it comes down to. So, you know, that's that's been a pretty popular kind of decision for people to do. And um, we've got a lot of people that, um, especially now, because they've got a lot of time on their hands, they have no coding experience whatsoever, but we walk them through this process and they can build trend following models or whatever kind of models they want to build. But we hold their hand all the way through and guide them through. So that's been an interesting experience. Admittedly, most of the people are very high net worth individuals um, because they don't trust anyone else with their own money. They want to be able to do it themselves. So it's been an interesting exercise. Yeah. I mean, what you say about confidence is uh, definitely very uh uh, interesting and, and relevant. Um, um, I certainly sometimes still get when people see the, the chart of what a thousand dollars, you know, is worth today invested in 1974. When we started, I think it's more than a million dollars it's worth today. And they still ask me, so do you think trend following works? And I'm thinking, <laughs> mm, I think it is. I think it does. But there we are. Trend following can't not work. I mean, really, that's the crux. It can't not work. Markets have to trend. Yeah. To, to, to suggest that markets can't trend would suggest that, one, uh, there's a fair value being found by every single participant in the market, and two, there is no human motion. And we know for a fact that human emotion drives these trends all the time, and humans are never going to change. So, you know, trends have always existed. They can't not exist, and therefore trend following as a strategy just has to keep working you know it's it's mm. it's a it's a core determinant of of generating um a positive expectancy yeah correct and also very protective for your capital as yeah. we have seen just now you know it tends to be that you know when stuff happens in the markets and it's really starting to move that uh, maybe not immediately, but after a while, you're on the right side of those moves. Yeah. And that is a very, very protective feature of trend following vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the long only buy and hold, buy and hope type mm. of crowd. 
And it, it's also simplistic in nature at right. a very basic level. I mean, you know, you look at the talking heads, are we in, are we going to go into stagflation? Are we going to deflation? And we're going to do this. And no one has Who an knows? idea. No one has an idea. All these experts, these PhDs of economics, they're all disagreeing. And thankfully, I don't have to think about that kind of stuff. That's right. All of these crises we go through, none of them see them coming, but they all know what the solution is. <laughs> and there's <laughs> the irony right there, right? No one, market timers can't time the market, but this is the sector you've got to be in now. <laughs> Nick, I had maybe a bit more of a technical operational question with um, with your signals. Um, you, you know, you're generating the signals to um, to your customers, to the subscribers, and have you ever found that you know? Because I, I don't know if you know how much money they're trading, given that the signals are now out there in the open domain and you can have a number of customers, do they have market impact or does it you know slip away? Does it cause problems? Is there too much money trading those type of things? And do you therefore need to evolve your systems and change them over time? Or is it still in a, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in a capacity where, where it's not a problem? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a common question we get from, uh, from new members. Um, the answer is is reasonably simple. Uh, first of all, we offer a variety of different strategies. So it's not like one of these tip sheets where this is our 5G pick for the next two years and every single member jumps on board. You know, that's not the way it works. We've got a number of different strategies. And not everyone trades every strategy. So it might be that they trade the Australian trend-following strategy. It could be they trade the US mean reversion strategy or one of the US momentum strategies. So quite immediately, um, the, there's dilution of how much capital is coming into each signal right there. In the Australian market, our trend-following strategy is certainly the, you know, the most um, popular strategy and what happens there is our signals come out and we then split them up into different risk categories so for example we have a conservative portfolio that trades just the top 100 stocks it's like trading the s p 100 if you like or the nasdaq 100 if you like then we've got uh small cap industrials we only trade in the top 500 stocks we don't go beyond that and we do have liquidity constraints in there um, so we're not trading stocks that aren't doing a certain amount of volume to start with. So the portfolio itself is then diluted because not everybody is going to trade um, the small cap industrials or they're not going to trade the, for example, I don't trade the large cap, the top 100 stocks. I don't trade those personally. So that again adds a, another element of dilution of the signal. And then the last thing is we don't use any intraday stops. We only enter market on open. And in Australia, we have a different kind of a mechanism. We have what's called an opening auction. So uh, Same here. Oh, okay, right. So that is the most liquid part of the day, that and the close. So we use the open. And again, part of that was twofold. When we first started the strategy, stop losses 
weren't readily available for a lot of brokers here in Australia. In fact, some brokers charged you to use a stop loss, <laughs> believe it or not. Crazy. Um, and second of all, we wanted customers to have a large window of time to actually place their orders and they can all get the same fill because of that opening auction price. So they've got between from 4 p.m. through till 10 a.m. the next morning to place that order. So there's no need for them to be um, text messaged or anything like that. They've got ample time to place that order and everyone gets the same fill in the most liquid point of the day. So we don't, and, and lastly, look, we are not a big time operation out here in Australia. Um, we run a small family business um, Trish, my wife, she knows all the customers personally. Uh, we don't advertise. It's all word of mouth. So we're not we're not trying to build, you know, we're not trying to build a big business or anything like that. Uh, we've become very good friends with a lot of our clients. Uh, Fishing is more important to me than building an empire. So, um, you know, that's that's what I'm about. Great. You actually also answered a lot of the questions that I had in general just about you know how it actually works and how do you get around some of these uh, operational issues I thought that was uh, that was super cool and and a good way of doing it um, so to speak and I can you do the same kind of style uh, in other uh, in the US portfolio is it just the Australian portfolio where you can do it like that and get it all done on the open which is obviously the fairest way uh, for everyone yeah, exactly right. So the US one, everything is is, is simple to execute. Market on open, uh, and that goes with exiting and entering positions. We just do market on open, and everyone gets the same price, um, and it's it's easy facilitated. We don't use any stop losses because you don't have that you know you don't have that risk of slippage. If everyone's competing, especially in the Australian market, since two thousand eight, the Australian stock market has become incredibly illiquid, and um, you know, I used to trade a turtle breakout strategy um, and I had to give that up in 2012. I calculated my slippage was creating 11% or costing me 11% per year um, because the strategy was using intraday stops. And that was me, myself, rather than all the clients as well. Um, so, yeah, we're very... We're very careful on on how we participate. That we did have a situation. We had a situation. I think it was back in around two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, when uh, one of our short term models was creating incredibly large slippage. Every time we put a signal out, these stocks would just move huge, and I couldn't figure out what was going on, um, and. I had written an article and then for some reason I Googled the title of that article and this article was only available to clients inside the website. And I Googled the heading of that article and up came the article word for word at a stockbroking firm. And it turned out that one of my clients who uh, was a fly-in, fly-out worker in the mines here in Australia couldn't log into the website one day so he rung his broker gave the broker his username and login and the broker logged in and saw, oh, this all looks pretty good. I might get all my clients into this. So for the next two weeks, this broker was logging in and 
putting all these buy and sell orders out to all his clients and causing absolute chaos. And it was only because I found out that he had published this article in his name um, that we found out where the leak was and we were able to shut it down very, very quickly. So I think if it does get out there in that respect, then you could have a problem. But, you know, uh, we're, we're very secure in what we do, but, you know, those things happen. Well, you've just mentioned about the slippage. I mean, it's, it's actually one of the things that I noticed as well. And in addition to the slippage, um, Germany, at least, ranks in my experience trading, you know, across a couple of markets, still, unfortunately, and nastily, as one of the countries, maybe next to Australia, with the highest commission per share uh, when you trade stocks. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's because there's a dominance of those old boy brokers that have never kind of like changed and they're like you know, keeping that market to themselves. But you know, you can trade for a buck on interactive brokers, any US stock that you want in whatever size. And when I want to do it here, it's a minimum of 35 euros. And when I put in an order for the Australian market, I'm not sure if you're charged the same rates down there, but you know, it's kind of like in the same ballpark. Yeah. And this is ridiculously expensive, yes. right? So it's, you know, just, just by the nature of that cost, because cost is an element of our business, a very important one. Uh, I'm not surprised that the liquidity is dying down. Yeah. I'm you, not going there. You, you're absolutely right. Um, so, these trend-following strategies that I trade, they only do 35 round turns a year, so there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of um, commission drag. But you're absolutely right. Australian commissions um, range anywhere from six dollars, which is interactive brokers per trade, all the way up to about well, and this is online trading, up to about thirty dollars. Now, the broker that charges thirty dollars, they have forty percent of the market share simply because of their name, nothing more. And because the very vast majority of people going through them are somewhat ignorant as to what else is available. You know, when I tell people you can trade for a buck in the US market, they're absolutely dumbfounded. They just have, didn't, they just- I thought it was free nowadays. Or free. Stock yeah. trading in the US well, is free. Nothing's, nothing's free. For free. <laughs> <laughs> free and risk-free. Uh, no. Um, so I don't do any short-term trading in Australia. It's just purely trend-following in Australia. Longer term, you know, my average hold period is about nine months and trade frequency, as I said, about 35 round turns a year per portfolio. So it's not a great deal of drag. Um, I think off the top of my head, the commission drag for my Australian portfolio is about 0.4% per year. So it's not a great deal. That's fine. But all my US trading short term or all my short term trading, yes, interactive brokers into the US dollar a trade or the tiered rate, depending on where you're at, but uh, certainly a lot cheaper. You mentioned liquidity uh, earlier and, and, and how liquidity has dried up. Um, I mean, has that continued? Is generally cash equities um, not a very liquid market to trade anymore? And, and why do you why do you think that might be? Um, because, of course, we were reminded, I think, in the last four or five weeks about, once again, the importance of liquidity. And, of course, this is where um, we often see, at least so far, that futures markets uh, stand up pretty well. Um, but I don't have any experience with cash markets. So 
be interested to hear your thoughts about that. Look, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the guy to ask specifically. You know, the, the algorithms out here um, <clears throat> have really boomed in the last, you know, five, six, seven years. Um, they're very, very uh, finicky. You know, you, you see the volume come in and disappear immediately. I'm not saying they're trying to spoof or anything like that, but there's obviously stuff going on the other side. I know back when I was on the trading floor, something like 70% of the SPY traded volume was from arbitrage traders. I don't know how much that is today. Um, a lot of those businesses really, um, I think, uh, sort of don't have the margins that they used to back in the day there. I think they're razor-tight margins now. And I guess the other $64 million question is, Passive investing, you know, it's 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 a big thing here in Australia. I don't think you'd be hard pressed to find a financial planner that would put you into anything more than a 60-40 portfolio. You know, it's 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 pretty generic. This is it. Um, so passive investing, I think, has a lot to answer for as well. Um, but I, I can't offer an explanation specific to why liquidity is is less than than what it was prior to 2008. Mm. I know you mentioned in our um, couple of emails exchanges uh, before uh, our conversation that um, you thought there were some similarities as far as I recall to 1987. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that what you see going on? Um, I just think the uh, the swiftness of the fall, um, I think it took everybody's by surprise. You know, 1987 was obviously program trading that, that caused that. Um, but I think here we've had significant capitulation very, very quickly, um, very aggressively. Mind you, the, the bounce back has been quite phenomenal as well. And I think, you know, the 60, the, what have we, six, 70%, I think, we've bounced back in the NASDAQ now, 50% in the S&P. The Australian market's, you know, falling behind. It's only up about 35 or 40% off the lows. But, you know, there's stocks there hitting new highs now. Some of those tech, tech leaders, it's quite remarkable. Um, obviously, the sugar hit from the central banks has been quite phenomenal. I think not only the size of their stimulus, but also the swiftness that they've put it in, they've certainly sent the message to the market that they will do anything. Now, I think that's the market's been happy with that so far. But when the data starts to roll through, which it is slowly coming through now, and we've got earnings next week, when that really starts to flow through, I think the market's going to be asking the central banks are you still going to be here for us, yes or no? And if they think no, well, we could go back and test those lows again. This is the biggest bounce, bear market, and I'm assuming it's a bear market bounce, not a new V-shaped low up into a new high, but this is the biggest bear market bounce uh, since 1929. We had a 46% bounce, I think the first corrective bounce after the first plunge, um, and then we slid, I think, considerably lower from there. But who knows, you know, this is not a repeat of what we saw in the fourth quarter of 2018. That was a, that was more of a rotation rather than, you know, a shock. 
So I can't help but think that a retest of the lows is probable, but I think it depends on how the market views the support from the central banks and the governments. You know, I think that's going to be the big thing. We're seeing pretty poor breadth at the moment in the US markets. Um, you know, the S&P 500 has regained its 50-day moving average, but only 25% of the stocks have regained their 50-day moving average. So there's not a great deal of breadth going on there at the moment, which doesn't bode well to, uh, you know, a stronger market. They could catch up, obviously. We could see some consolidation here and we could see remarks from the central banks saying, yeah, we'll keep doing what we're doing. And if that's the case, then I guess we go higher. But um, I just can't help but think, mind you, that's why I don't do fundamentals because I'm not particularly good at it. But I can't think that we couldn't test those lows again. No, it's quite remarkable. I mean, I was obviously the, the, the weekly jobless claims are, are quite uh, easy to follow. You know, we're up like 26 million of, of, of new unemployed people in the last five weeks. That in itself is extraordinary. Um, and, 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 and as you say, some, some markets, some indices, obviously driven by very few stocks, but some indices are not that far off their all-time highs, which were at a, an extreme level uh, to begin with. And then I saw in Europe, um, there's a uh, report out from the consulting firm McKinsey saying that you could expect up to 59 million unemployed in Europe from the coronavirus. And I'm thinking, that's a lot of people and doesn't look like um, that's fully priced into the markets uh, at all. But I mean, as you say, the beauty of what we do is that we don't have to worry about these things. And I think, again... And and this is what I was just saying in, in, in my introduction when, when we had this debate about oil, that even something that you can certainly say it's never been in our data, it's never happened before, as far as I'm aware, at least with the oil market going negative. But it's not something that, that trend following has to kind of um, worry about because that's the nature of following just price. That's the only truth really that we have left in 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 um, you know in the markets is just what is the price right now and and how can we use that constructively to um, to react so to speak so uh, yeah I think Jerry made a, a, a good comment last week or the week prior actually he said you know it just goes to show that anything anything beyond your wildest expectations can and will occur even if you do a 100-year backtest or a 500-year backtest, you're going to get something that's never, ever happened before. And, um, you know, that oil move is quite remarkable. And I think for the general public, I don't think the general public really understands some of the moves in these markets, you know, the, the currencies, the bonds, just stuff you never really hear about. There's just phenomenal moves going on. The volatility is crazy. And, and I would say on top of that, I mean, at, in late February, when we saw oil move down by 30% at the open, we thought, wow, that is big. But actually, when the May contract went negative, it actually dropped percentage-wise something like 248% yeah. in a day. And so the whole concept of something losing more than 100% in value is is pretty novel. Um, but now we've, we've seen it. And uh, yeah, and I'm sure we won't, uh, this won't be the, the last time we're going to be surprised in, in, in 2020 about things that we didn't think could happen, um, like the Fed buying junk bonds. <laughs> mm. 
Look, like like Jerry says, and you know, we, I think we all agree. There's always that new curveball, and always that new surprise that comes to us. And um, but what happened on Monday with the negative oil price? It was just, you know, I was actually on the phone speaking to a colleague at the point it happened. So I had a Bloomberg screen open. I have live data, and I was watching that contract, and it was at like six bucks. And then it traded down to five, traded down to four, to three, then back up again. It was kind of like, okay, so there's the zero and it's getting close. And then boom, 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 it went to like 50 cents. It tested the zero, went negative by a cent, went back above zero again. And then I was like, during that 30 minute or 45 minute phone call, it had this just falling off a cliff behavior that moved from zero to minus five to minus 10. Once we've hit minus 10, it was kind of like the next stop is minus 20, minus 30, minus 37, and it, it massive speed, right? Mm. Absolute massive speed. Out of interest, I had a look at um, a couple of the broker platforms. They immediately stopped quoting. Uh, you couldn't trade that contract anymore, mm -hmm. right? And um, so it is what I want to say. This is one of the events that is, and there, there are a couple, but this is one that I will not forget. Mm. This is something to remember. You know, mm. I mean, you can you can see Tesla go all the way up to nine hundred bucks. Maybe in a couple of years, I'll forget about that because okay, it happened. It's you know crazy move. But this market going negative within like a fifteen minute time span, losing forty bucks is uh, that's one for the history books. I actually being in a different time zone, I woke up with about thirty minutes to go for the market and opened my Bloomberg. I was still in bed, opened the Bloomberg, and I looked at the oil price. I thought, oh, my Bloomberg's buggered. There's something wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> it took about two hours to actually figure out, oh, that's actually right. <laughs> yeah. So the maybe maybe listeners are interested in that, but, you know, they they're obviously there's been a lot of talking about who caused it, who was on the, like, who was... Who was causing that drop? Because it happened on the Monday and the May contract expired on the Tuesday. So you're one day ahead of last trade day. And so, you know, most say retail trading platforms wouldn't allow their retail accounts to hold a contract for that long. So they're kind of like forcing you out. Uh, the first notice date for crude is two days after the last trade. So that would have been three days away. A lot of the retail platforms kind of like force you out. So probably not a lot of retail money in that trade. And then the institutional players, um, they, in my experience, don't tend to hold for that long because the exchange increases position limits as you approach expiry and they become more and more cumbersome. So they tend to roll earlier. Speaking for ourselves, we as CTAs, we roll earlier. We're interested in getting a liquid roll and we're not rolling on the last trading day or the second last trading day. It's just not our business to be there. And I don't think it's the banks and their index businesses like, you know, GSCI and that stuff because they have roll schedules, which, you know, happen way early in the month. And so one of the hypotheses was that it must be speculative or hedge fund type of money, assuming that there's still a little bit of storage capacity in Cushing, Oklahoma left. It's not yet full tank tops, right? And they see that spread between May and June trading at minus 12 bucks, which was a historic low. And they will just go, 
let's buy May and sell June. It's just one month. We'll be able to get some storage on Monday morning. We'll pick up the phone, pay through the nose. Somebody will give us a little bit of storage in Cushing, Oklahoma. And uh, we'll just ARP that thing and make 12 bucks, you know, minus the cost that it will cost to store and insure the thing for only one month, right? So you pick up the phone on Monday morning and you figure out that, no, all the storage, even though we're not at tank tops, but all the storage has been reserved. It's been called for the week prior. You cannot get it, right? So then you sit there with your May contract long and it's delivered or it stops trading tomorrow and you get first notice two days later. And what do you do if you have no place to put it? You're a forced seller. And it, you know, to me, it's, I'm not sure if that is correct in any way, but it would explain or support at least that so quick deterioration of price from like zero to minus 40, which was pure capitulation. I mean, this was just gapping lower. I mean, it was just, there, there are holes in the chart, right? It's kind of like, for sure. Yeah, I think interactive brokers took an $88 million hit. Um, oh, yeah, they did. So, you know, I wonder if it was one of their clients. Sounds like it. I haven't heard of anything else. But but in general, Moritz, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, it's hedge funds can easily be blamed for these things. But I would imagine that these people are kind of specialized commodity or specialized energy type traders who, you know, they're not the typical hedge fund, uh, if at all. Uh, I mean, I would say they're yeah, energy, pure, not a diversified energy speculators, right? That, exactly. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's it's speculation, but uh, you know, on the back of that, as always, what drove me a little bit nuts this week is, uh, excuse my French, but all the BS that comes out of that, like you know, banks saying, oh well, you know, we have those long only total re- uh, total return tracking certificates that track the price of oil, and they roll the front month contract. And so all of a sudden, I was saying, look, the the, con- the the concept of a fully collateralized futures position has just been thrown out of the window because the thing can go negative, right? You can owe more money than you've put in. And then one of the response was, well, this is exactly why we, why we don't roll on the second to last trade day. We roll on the third. It's like, what? I mean, really? I mean, is this the, the, the first law of rolling contracts? It is, can only go negative on the second and, and you know, last trade date and not on the third? As like, I mean, all of that crazy stuff coming out of that thing, it's um, baloney. But this is why some of these, frankly, ETF products are, you know, toxic, really. I mean, was it XIV was also uh, an ETF type product, right? I mean, it's they just bundle things in and the people who buy them... Um, I think it's probably too difficult for, for, for them to really understand what goes on inside. So when you have a situation like this, it's unfortunately a lot of retail money that, that comes out short uh, on these uh, on these products. Um, and, and by the way, I'm sitting here with a couple of questions. I mean, Brian and Michael are sending questions about oil. I know we've kind of talked about uh, most of yeah, these situations, you know, no, no, but no, no. I mean, I think we actually have. I just wanted to acknowledge uh, Brian and, and Michael for sending in questions about oil. I think we've talked uh, about most of it, you know, because it does pertain to the fact, you know, can you envisage a situation where you can't get out of a contract? But of course, as 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 you alluded to, Moritz, I mean, 
as a CTA, we we don't go so close to to uh, expiry. I mean, we roll our contracts way in advance um, because we don't want to be in a situation. Does that guarantee that you can't get in a sticky situation? Of course not, because there is something called limit up and limit down in commodities. So from time to time, we do get caught in not being able to trade in and out of our positions. Um, and But again, that's part of this risk management. And I think that's also part of what... Um, Unique have have alluded to, to, you know, running a business nowadays is not just about buying and selling. It's all the other stuff. It's all the other things that comes with it, and 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 kind of the risk management side of things, such as uh, building contingencies and 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 uh, monitoring systems for just the markets you trade in terms of liquidity and and open interest and all of that stuff. I mean, it's it's highly complex, which is. Which is why I often don't recommend people to do trend following themselves because I actually think it's a little bit more, there's a little bit more to it, um, uh, even though it might sound self-serving because, you know, I work for a manager. But no, it's actually because I do think nowadays and with the markets being what they are and, and, and 24-7 almost or 24-5 uh, almost, it, it, it you know, you need to really have your eye on the ball, especially if you use leverage. I mean, leverage is, adds another complexity to it. Uh, so uh, one needs to be careful. We have another question we can go through. I have a couple of questions here. Let's see what they say. So here's a, a question from another Michael. Um, he talks about the difference between risk and volatility. Uh, if volatility is not the way you measure risk or your risk budget, how do you measure it? Um, he says, I have three basic ideas. I would love to really hear you elaborate on these. One, you measure the risk based on the recent performance of your system instead of volatility. Or B, you, uh, for your risk number, you only measure volatility in the opposite direction of your position. If you're long, you only measure short vol. And three, um, your risk number is a function of both volatility as well as correlation, meaning if several markets start to move together in lockstep, you treat that as one risk position. Moritz, what are your kind of, I know this is a topic we've touched on before risk and volatility and we often say that it's not the same so i'm sure that that's something mike uh, or michael has it's referring to uh, so i'd love to hear your views again uh, moritz and then i'd love to hear your views uh, nick about just this concept which i think a lot of people struggle with to understand why we may say that it's not the same thing yeah so well Thanks, Michael. Uh, first off, um, I think all of that ties in a bit to what it is that I'm doing. Correlation ties in and volatility ties in and distance to stop ties in and average true ranges and all of that is, you know, part of my risk management and money management framework. I mean, volatility is something that has not necessarily a direction, right? Volatility is just movement up or down. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is a risk. It just, you know, shows you that things are moving, price is moving, and returns are moving. Um, risk to me is something else than that. I don't necessarily mind the volatility because I can respond to volatility in the way that I size my position and, you know, where I place stops. The risk to me is the loss of capital or even worse, the permanent loss of capital. And I'm putting in circuit breakers kind of, if you will, 
in the way that I design my systems so that that doesn't happen. I'm very happy and very prepared, not happy, but very prepared to lose capital on certain trades, right? But it is within the framework that controls that so that I'm not risking too much. I'm not risking too much on a certain position. I'm not risking too much on a certain you know, sector of positions, if you will, which is where correlation play, plays a role. Think about crude oil and heating oil, things like that, right? Highly correlated markets. Um, but then I just let the volatility do what it wants to do. I would love to also ask you, uh, Nick, a little bit about uh, kind of the same theme, because, of course, um, when you don't use stops, um, and we know that certainly if you trade a, a basket of equities, uh, if there is a crisis, correlations tend to go very close to one. Uh, so how do you think about that in your risk management and how do you do risk management uh, in, in, in general? So you, you're absolutely right. Um, obviously holding portfolio of stocks highly serially correlated. So if you do get a shock, most stocks will tend to follow each other, exactly what we've just seen. Um, our answer, so the way our models work, they use uh, obviously a standard kind of trailing stop, but where we do things a little bit differently is when the broader market trend suggests that we're going into a bear market of some type or is bearish, our stops all ratchet up. So we don't close the door immediately on positions. We've found through research that market leaders, when a market is having a dip, market leaders tend to consolidate rather than dip. And we want to stay with those whilst they consolidate because they'll be the first to push higher when the time comes, when the broader market turns around. So we don't close the door entirely on the positions. Uh, we, we leave the door open a little bit, give the market a little bit room to move, but not as much as what we would if the broader market was trending higher. Um, and at that point, no more buy signals will come out. So, you know, if we're only 70% long, then we will not get any longer um, until that broader market firms up. It's, it's clear evidence that having a regime filter significantly enhances the risk-adjusted return. Um, yes, you can find stocks that go up during a bear market, but for the vast majority, that's not the case, and we best stand out of those completely, and, and vice versa. You know, in bull markets, you can find stocks that are going down, but the probabilities of success of trading against the broader market trend are, are diluted somewhat. Um, so, you know, in this particular instance, we started moving to cash automatically during February. It wasn't a prediction that the market was going to fold or, or, or collapse like it did. It's just the broader trends started rolling over. Our stops tightened up, ratcheted up and we slowly went to cash one after the other. I think we were completely in cash by about the 2nd of March or so. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, it, it comes with a little bit of damage. I think the current drawdown at the moment um, is about 12.9% on that portfolio. Um, so, you know, we're in cash now. So the markets can go to hell in a handbasket. We're not going to be worried too much about that. And if they turn up again, we'll just start all over again and, and start buying. In terms of our position sizing, look, we do not keep it, we, we, we keep it very, very simple. 
And again, I come back to this point I made earlier on that if you keep it simple, then generally people are going to follow because they understand it. So we don't do any, and this may sound somewhat startling to many of your listeners and to you too, but we don't do volatility position sizing because one, it's, it's complex for most people to grasp. And our research suggests that it actually doesn't make a big deal of difference to the bottom line. So what we're kind of doing is putting stocks um, in, uh, in categories, if you like, in baskets, and we are allocating fixed capital to, to each one of those. So for example, um, the large cap stocks, the top 100 stocks, they more or less have the same volatility, more or less. Um, so we will divide our capital into 20 equal pieces and buy allocate 5% to each one of those. And that's how we do it. Um, as I said, it may not be the most optimal way to do it, but it's a way that people understand and will more likely do than if I say, right, we've got to calculate the average true range for the last 15 days and so on and so forth and, and allocate 1.5% of total capital and so on. So it's a different way of doing it, but it's, it's an effective way for people to, to get it done. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I mean, we often talk about, you know, good enough is good enough. I mean, it, we we shouldn't strive for perfection because it doesn't really exist anyway. So uh, I just want to do one more question because, um, interestingly enough, three people called Michael um, wrote in. So I just want to make sure that all three get uh, acknowledged here. And uh, and so this is the third Michael um, who uh, asked a very interesting question, actually. Um you know, when you do breakout uh, methodology, it's kind of relatively straightforward to calculate and, and where you want to have your stop, et cetera, et cetera. But he does ask, um, how would we go about sizing a position when using moving averages? Um, so I don't know. Um, I don't know if uh, I mean I don't think you 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 don't use moving averages more so um, and I don't know if that is part of your strategy either Nick uh, but um, how would one actually yeah but I you know I think it can be done in a similar way so let me give an example say you get a signal to buy if spot trades greater the 50 day or 200 day or whatever moving average you're using right uh, nobody's forcing you to you know, keep that position until the spot crosses the moving average again from the top side and trades lower. You can create a system that says, my signal is to get long if I'm above the 200-day moving average. Now the question is, how do I size it and where do I get out? You can just as well as, you know, some people do it with their breakout models say, okay, I'm going to calculate a certain average to range. That average to range has been X over the past, say, 20 days or 30 or 50 days, whatever it is that you're using. You now, you now know how many you want to risk a certain number of ATRs and you calculate your position size that way and you have a stop in the market. So this is one way of doing it. It can be done, right? Um, you can also, if you don't want to do that, if you want to have a system that, you know, goes in, if you're above the 200 day and goes out and maybe even short if you are below the 200 day um, you can find a position size that is a function of volatility or average true range at that point in time without a stop 
So there's many possibilities. Um, mo moving average systems don't dictate that you take a position that is notionally always the same uh, when it goes above and then take that position off when it goes below. It can be dynamic and you can adjust it to what it is that you like. Yeah. Um, any thoughts from you, Nick? Or Yeah, well, the, the other consideration is, you know, a lot of the time we talk about entering a position and putting a stop in. But you can also exit a position um, without a stop. You can exit a position based on an exit, you know, um, and a moving average crossover would be that simply. So again, um, and I, I have run these tests where we allocated 5% to 20 equal positions and run a moving average crossover. I've, I've, the book is sitting over there on the floor. I can see it. I can go and pick it up and, and, and tell you what it is. But that way you're actually exiting based on a um, the crossover itself. A signal, um, yeah. yeah. Now, something like that, though, in a leveraged market like futures would probably be deadly but um, and certainly wouldn't advise, but it's a bit different in a cash market where you don't have that situation, you know. Um, that That's saying that, you know, that's kind of what we do. We don't have a stop loss. We don't use stop losses as I highlighted before because it, it causes all sorts of panic and havoc in the market that we don't want to generate ourselves. So we use exits um, and our exits are based on the closing price. Our research shows that exiting when the close is below a certain point actually removes those big spikes down that sometimes you can get on a news event or, or, or something like that or stop loss being triggered and you know cascading the market down and then recovering just as quick so that adds a little bit more of an edge by taking the closing price i'm not necessarily suggesting i agree that amateurs open the market professionals close the market but the research certainly shows that taking the closing price and you would do that with a moving average as well. Um, so there are ways around it. Some of our shorter term strategies don't use stop losses at all. Um, they use exits. So when an exit um, criteria is met, you're out, but that's not a stop loss. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned books. Generally speaking, actually, Michael also in his question sense that he sent in asked whether there are any books in general that um, we can think of uh, when it comes to um, maybe the risk management position sizing type uh, issues. Um, I'm kind of blanking right now, so I don't know if you have any any particular books that you've come across that you... Uh, yeah, I think uh, if I could just jump in there, I think uh, Van Tharp has written a couple of really fantastic books actually titled that way. Yeah. I think one is called The Ultimate Guide to Position Sizing and there's one or two uh, ones in addition to that, which uh, which have really helped me along and they're out there for people to buy and I think they're fantastic. Mm. I was gonna say Van Tharp, I think he wrote a, uh, wasn't quite a white paper, but I remember I bought it, gosh, 20, 20 years ago. I think he actually called it the special report on money management. Um, and that was probably a precursor to that book that you have mentioned there, Maritz. Um, and I remember getting it, it was just a soft copy, um, sort of cobbled together, but it had all the answers. I'm not sure if it's still available or not in that format, but it was called Special Report on Money Management. Good stuff. 
Good stuff. Those were the questions uh, this week. Let me just quickly run through where we stand performance-wise for the month, and then we can come up with any final thoughts uh, before we wind down for uh, for this episode. Uh, the B Top 50 index. So these are, of course, always as a Thursday evening. I think Friday, by the way, was a positive day for most CTAs. Uh, B Top 50 index uh, up 0.86 percent for the month, uh, but still down 1.43 percent for the year. We have the SOCGEN CTA index up 1.19 for the month and up 64 basis points for the year. The trend index doing well, up 1.55% for the month of April and up 3.88 for the year. And the SOCGEN short-term traders index a little bit down, 7 basis points for the month, up uh, pretty much the same as the trend followers, 3.87% for the year and finally the bridge alternatives up 1.19% for the month and up 4.41% for the month of sorry for the year 2020 um any final thought this was a lot of great stuff i think we it was a little bit different because obviously you you're sort of uh, trading in a different style than um, than we are and so i think that was uh, really interesting and, and useful any final thoughts from you, Moritz, from you, Nick, anything you want to leave our audience with today? Um, one of the things I've been working on and um, have recently started trading on a uh, smaller test account is um, uh, something that I got from this podcast, and that's um, looking at um, different kind of markets. Um, so trading trends in uh, equity spreads as an example, not mean reverting, but actually trading the breakouts in the spreads um, between uncorrelated stocks. So, you know, we had some positions there over February, March, that uh, because the stocks are moving together, um, they have the same beta and uh, they have the same beta as the S&P 500. So they are kind of moving together, but you just get some amazingly clean trends over time, both up and down, but you don't have that immediate market risk, you know, like we saw in in, uh, March. So all of a sudden, um, you know, there's a lot of different synthetic kind of instruments that are out there. Um, I guess the downside is the expense of trading it because you don't get a margin offset on the short to the long. So, you know, it's it's probably not a cheaper way to do it. But um, it's just something that I've been working on. It's, it's going along very nicely. Um, I'm not sure if I'm missing something, but, uh, yeah, just thinking outside the box a little bit differently. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is how new stuff is found. And this would, you know, if you're doing it uh, on the stocks only and not across asset classes, this it's probably a kind of market neutral trend following type of thing because you have a long and a short on at the same time. And yeah, trading costs are going to be higher because you're trading both legs. Uh, but, you know, if the net performance and the risk adjusted returns are good enough, then why not? Yeah, interesting. Cool. Good. Well, on that note, let's wrap up this week's conversation. Nick, this was really great. Thanks for coming on the show. It's uh, obviously late where you are on a on a Saturday, so we really appreciate that. And, and of course, we appreciate your views. And, and it was really uh, educational, I think, for, for everyone. So with that said, from Nick, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. In the meantime, 
Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.